everybody. How was the long weekend? Um, mine was quite good. I spent most of the weekend watching Jane Austen movies, um, excepting, of course, Persuasion, because I didn't want to get too influenced by the movie. I'm trying to enjoy the book slowly. Um, today has been quite a day, though. I missed taking my car into the appointment and when I was supposed to, and then I came back, found a clogged dishwasher, and blah. Yeah, so I'm recording later than I'd intended to. Um, got out of the habit, but we'll get back in it soon. All right, here we are, chapter three in volume two. Um, Anne has just returned to Bath to stay with Sir Walter and Elizabeth. Um, she's now firmly in their power. You know, they'll they'll push her in and pull her about, and she doesn't really. She's given up a lot of personal independence. Ladies at that time, especially unmarried ladies, really didn't have any independent powers, and she doesn't have any independent income. So, yeah, she's not looking for a very bright time here in Bath, which is a town she already doesn't like. Um, the only chapter note, I believe we've talked a bit before, but I'm going to mention it again, is a police... Um, it is spelled P-E-L-I-S-S-E. -S -S -E. Um, I've always said police. I have no idea how it's actually pronounced, but that's how I pronounce it myself. Um, and that was, at the time, there were sort of two sort of little jackets that ladies often wore. Um, and a police was a longer jacket. It, um, went over your dress and you'd wear a jacket when going out unless it was you know the summer and so it was a light coat um and uh, it was not quite as long as your dress but it'd be close and it buttoned in the front or fastened somehow at the time military dress was very much in fashion so it oh i forgot to mute my phone um so military style um buttonings might have been um the favor of the day, if you can imagine, like the gold uh, broke or rope type thing. And anyway, <laughs> my descriptions are not with me this afternoon. Um, the other type of jacket that ladies often wore were called Spencers, and they were small jackets um, that because you're looking at the era of empire waists, so the dress fitting just under your bust and your Spencer came in at where the waist of your dress was. So it was just a small jacket, and sometimes it was long-sleeved, sometimes it was just short little capped sleeves um, that you would wear just either for extra embellishment to your dress or um, just an extra layer to keep warm because, um, it, yeah, back in the day before they had, you know, heating in the rooms and stuff, it was probably a very chilly place to live. Um, in England where it's always rainy and damp and anyway so Spencers and police are two different types of jackets and we'll come to that in this chapter we'll also talk about um, um, as I assume everyone knows that when women went out of doors they had to wear a bonnet or a hat depending on um, the style uh, women who are out in society were allowed to a little bit more in terms of what they were allowed to put on, women who were young girls had more strict 
things that they had to adhere to. Um, married women always wore a cap, like you've seen, uh, like a it's kind of like a lace thing, and it just you pin it to your head, and it just covers your hair. Um, and married women, spinsters, widows, they all wore them. Um, and then you'd wear your bonnet over them, but you'd leave the lace thingy on when you were indoors as well. Um, the only women who were exempt from wearing them were um, young girls, um, young women who are just in courtship. You know, they aren't they aren't married. And sometimes young married women were allowed to not wear their married women's caps. Um, and that was because they were still allowed, you know, a little bit of vanity. But the idea is kind of once you are married you don't need to look good anymore. You don't need to have any kind of vanity. So you wear this cap for extra modesty. And now at this time, uh, those curls at the front of your face are still very popular. Um, and so you would still have some hairdo you could have. But in general, you weren't really supposed to be a, a woman who spent time at a looking glass looking just so. So you were supposed to wear a married woman's cap. Anyway, that's just some clothing notes because I really like fashion um, in general. Historical fashion especially is fascinating to me. Um, so we'll leave it there and we'll get started with chapter three. Sir Walter had taken a very good house in Camden Place, a lofty, dignified situation such as becomes a man of consequence. Both he and Elizabeth were settled there, much to their satisfaction. Anne entered with a sinking heart, anticipating an imprisonment of many months, anxiously saying to herself, Oh, when shall I leave you again? A degree of unexpected cordiality, however, in the welcome she received did her good, her father and sister were glad to see her, for the sake of showing her the house and furniture, and met her with kindness. Her making a fourth when they sat down to dinner was a noted advantage. Mrs. Clay was very pleasant and very smiling, but her coarsities and smiles were more a matter of course. Anne had always felt that she would pretend what was proper on her arrival, but the complacence of others was unlooked for. They were evidently in excellent spirits, and she was soon to listen to the causes." They had no inclination to listen to her. After laying out for some compliments of being deeply regretted in their old neighborhood, which Anne could not pay, they only had a few faint inquiries to make, and before, before all the talk must be their own, Uppercross excited no interest, Kellich very little. It was all Bath. They had the pleasure of assuring her that Bath was more, that Bath more than answered their expectations in every respect. Their house was undoubtedly the best in Camden Place. Their drawing-rooms had many decided advantages over the others which they had either seen or heard of, and the superiority was not less in the style of the fitting up or the taste of furniture. Their acquaintance was exceedingly sought after. Everybody was wanting to visit them. They had drawn back from many introductions, and were still perpetually le having cards left by people of whom they knew nothing. Leaving cards. Oh, what a time. What an era. Um, this day, we talked about before about when you go to visit people and visiting hour and to be visited and what that's like. Well, when you went to visit someone, if they were not in or were not 
disposed to receive visitors, you would leave your card, um, your card, essentially a business card with your name and your address. Um, it was a social card, I suppose, rather than a business card. And you might write a note on the back of it or something and you leave it with the people so they know who came to call on them and who they might want to go visit in return. Um, so when they're saying they're having cards left by people of whom they knew nothing, that is extremely surprising. Usually you only go visit people whom you know, um, and you would leave your card, uh, if they weren't in, but if they were people who didn't know, just want to go visit the Elliot's, I bet it's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, but it's possible that they could have left their card because they were desirous of making an acquaintance. They'd met at a party, perhaps, and only spoken a few words together. And the other person really wanted to know the Elliots, visited them, left their card, and then hoped the Elliots would pursue um, an introduction, a more proper, remember, memorable introduction. So, but that's what leaving cards is. Um, it started to go out of style for at least the lower classes pretty early. Um, the upper class liked to hang on to their cards and, you know, they thought it was very cool that, um, I think in, oh, whose work is it? I, was it one of the Bronte sisters who talked about, you know, the cards of all the various rich people with, you know, certain embellishments here, you know, a gilded edge or a lacy floral design, um, so cards could be quite unique. They weren't always boring, but they were essentially business card size. So you could keep them in your diary, um, which the British call your diary more like a, a, a appointment book and recorder rather than, you know, we think of, well, I think of the diary I kept as a little girl that was mostly, you know, ah, my parents made me do the cat litter, ah, you know, that kind of diary. Anyway, I've wandered from the point. Back to the story. Here were funds of enjoyment. Could Anne further one could Anne wonder that her father and sister were happy? She might not wonder, but she must sigh that her father should feel no degradation to his change, should see nothing to regret in the duties and dignities of the resident landholder, should find so much to be vain in the littleness of the town, and she must sigh and smile and wonder, too, as Elizabeth threw open the folding doors and walked out with exultation from one drawing-room to the other, boasting of their space and the possibility that a woman who had been mistress of Kellich Hall, finding the extent to be proud of between two walls, perhaps thirty feet asunder. But this was not all which had made them happy. They had Mr. Elliot, too. Anne had a great deal to hear of Mr. Elliot. He had not only been pardoned, they were delighted with him. He had been, been in Bath about a fortnight. He had passed through Bath in November on his way to London, when the intelligence of Sir Walter's being settled there, of course, had reached him. Though only four, twenty-four hours in the place, but he had not been able to avail himself of it. But now he had been a fortnight in Bath, and his first object on arriving had been to leave his card in Candom Place, following it up by such assiduous endeavours to meet— and when they did meet, by such great openness of conduct, such readiness to apologize for the past, and such solicitude to be received as a relation again, that their former good understanding was completely re-established. They had not a fault to find in him. He had explained away all the appearance of neglect on his own side, and it had originated in a misapprehension entirely. 
it had originated in misapprehension entirely. He never had any idea of throwing himself off. He had feared that he was thrown off, but knew not why, and had delicacy which had kept him silent. Upon the hint of having spoken disrespectfully or carelessly of the family and family honors, he was quite indignant. He who had ever boasted of being an Elliot, and whose feelings as to the connection were only strict to suit the unfeudal tone of the present day. He was astonished indeed, but his character and general conduct must refute it. He could refer to Sir Walter to all who knew him, and certainly the pains he had taken on this, the first opportunity of reconciliation, to be restored to the footing of the relation and heir presumptive, was strong proof of his opinions on the subject. The circumstances of his marriage, too, were found to admit much extenuation. This was an article not to be entered on, on by himself, but a very intimate friend of his, a Colonel Wallace, a highly respectable man, perfectly the gentleman, and not an ill-looking gentleman, Sir Walter added, who was living in very good style at the Marlborough buildings, and had, in his own particular request, been admitted to their acquaintance through Mr. Elliot, and had mentioned one or two things re relative to the marriage, which made material difference in the discredit of it. Colonel Wallace had known Mr. Elliot long, and had been well acquainted also with his wife, and had perfectly understood the whole story. She was certainly not a woman of family, but well-educated, accomplished, rich, and excessively in love with his friend. There had been charm. She had sought him. Without that attraction, not all her memory would have, money would have tempted in Elliot and Sir Walter was, moreover, assured of her having been a very fine woman. Here was a great deal to soften the business, a very fine woman with a large fortune in love with him. Sir Walter seemed to admit it as a complete apology, and though Elizabeth could not see the circumstance in quite so favorable a light, she allowed it to be a great extenuation. Mr. Elliot had called repeatedly, had dined with them once, evidently delighted by the distinction of being asked, for they gave no dinners in general, delighted, in short, by proof, every proof of cousinly notice, and placed his whole happiness on being in intimate terms with Camden Place. Anne listened, but without quite understanding it. Allowances, large allowances, she knew, must be made for the idea of those who spoke. She heard it all under embellishment. All that sounded extravagant or irrational in the process of the reconciliation might have no origin but in the language of the relators. Still, however, she had the sensation of there being something more than immediately appeared in Mr. Elliot's wishing, after an interval of so many years, to be well received by them. In a worldly view, he had nothing to gain by being on terms with Sir Walter, nothing to risk by a state of variance. In all probability, he was already the richer of the two, and the Kelch estate would surely be his as well as the title. A sensible man, and he, should, and he had looked like a very sensible man. Why should it be an object to him? He, she could only offer one solution. It was, perhaps, for Elizabeth's sake. There might really have been a liking formally, though convenience and an accident had drawn him in a different way, and now he could afford to please himself. He might not he might mean to pay his addresses to her. Elizabeth was certainly very handsome, with well-bred, elegant manners, and her character might never have been penetrated by Mr. Elliot, knowing her but in public, and when very young himself. How her temper and understanding might bear the investigation of his present keener time of life was another concern, and rather a fearful one. Most earnestly she did wish that he might not 
be too nice or too observant if Elizabeth were his object, and that Elizabeth was disposed to believe herself so, and that her friend Mrs. Clay was encouraging the idea, seemed apparent by glance between the two of them while Mr. Elliot's frequent visits were talked of. Okay, so here we have a very important note. The easy-to-flatter, vain people are very pleased with Mr. Elliot, uh, and they're telling Anne this story, and, and Anne realizes that everything they say has embellishments. So she's like, I don't know if all of this is exactly true, but assuming most of it's true, she questions Mr. Elliot's motives. Why, after so many years, does he want to make friends? Let he has nothing to gain by it, technically. Like she said, he's still going to get all the estate. He's rich without any help from uh, Mr. Sir Elliot. So there's no real reason not behind it other than, you know, she thinks maybe he had fallen in love with Elizabeth in the past, but decided to marry someone rich. And now that he's a widow, uh, they often said that you know, your first marriage is to please others and your second is to please yourself. Um, I've seen that expression in other books and um, that could be what kind of Anne is thinking is that maybe maybe he'd fallen in love with Elizabeth a little and now that he's a widow, he's going to go and see maybe if he could fall in love with Elizabeth again. It'd be a very convenient arrangement at this time of his life, especially now that he's gained more money. Um so, yeah, so Anne, with her, you know, deep intellect, is doing a little questioning, but um, especially since Mrs. Clay and Elizabeth think that he's after Elizabeth, she's kind of decided that that's his motive, too. But, you know, Anne's, <laughs> Anne's a clever one, and I appreciate that in a character. Um, yeah, that she doesn't believe her family at first glance when they tell her things. I think it's just funny, you know... The, the main character knowing that people are lying to her is very refreshing. Sometimes you read novels, even J other Jane Austen novels, and the main character is, like, painfully unaware that everyone is lying to them. <laughs> like, anyway, okay, moving on. I just felt I should sum that up because it may or may not be an important plot point. Anyway, here we go. Anne mentioned the glimpses she'd had of him at Lyme, but without it being much attended to. Oh, yes, perhaps it had been Mr. Elliot. They did not know. It might be him, perhaps. They could not listen to her description of him. They were describing him themselves, Sir Walter especially. He did justice to his very gentlemanlike appearance, his air of elegance and fashion, his good-shaped face, his sensible eye, but, at the same time, must lament his being very much underhung, a defect which time seemed to have increased, nor could he pretend to say that ten years had not altered almost every feature for the worst. Mr. Elliot appeared to think that he, Sir Walter, was looking exactly as he'd done when they last parted, but Sir Walter had not been able to return the compliment entirely, which had embarrassed him. He did not mean to complain, however. Mr. Elliot was better to look at than most men. He had no objection to being seen with him anywhere. Um, just a little note there, underhung, um, despite what some of you little dirty birds out there might be thinking, that means that he kind of has a protruding jaw. Um, so if you think that, um, time seems to have increased it, his teeth are probably crooked and he's probably looking even worse in his, um, jaw area than normal. Um, so shame on you for assuming it was anything else. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Mr. Elliot and his friends in Marlborough Buildings were talked of the whole evening. Colonel Wallace had been so impatient to be introduced to them, and Mr. Elliot was so anxious that he should, and there a Mrs. Wallace at present only known to them by description, as she was much in the daily expectation of her confinement. But Mr. Elliot spoke of her as a most charming woman, being quite worthy of being known in Camden Place. As soon as she recovered, they were to be acquainted. I really, I swear I read this for chapter notes ahead of time. I got all distracted by fashion. Um, confinement, I'm going to just refresh people's memory, is the final um, stage of a pregnancy. Um, clothes being what they were at the time and society being what it was at the time, it didn't really allow for pregnant women to move in it very comfortably. Um, so when you were in your early stages of pregnancy and it wasn't highly noticeable, you could move out in society, but probably by the middle of your second trimester, definitely by your third trimester, you were in confinement. And... For a little while, you could be seen by close friends and family. And then after that, you weren't even really supposed to see them. Oftentimes, women in confinement were pretty much confined to their room on bed rest or very near you know, like it. Um, this was because, think of infant mortality rates and, well, um, what do they call Mother mortality rates, maternal, maternal fatality rates. Um, it was a, being pregnant was a very dangerous thing and children's lives were very important, especially amongst the wealthy to have children succeed you. Um, so it was an abundance of caution was taken. Um, and, um, also this idea that, you know, pregnant women were unseemly to be seen in public. Well, yeah, that was kind of the idea. I think that sort of, grew as people became abundantly more cautious with pregnancies by staying indoors. Um, definitely if you were lactating, oh my God, no, you can't be in public because, you know, clothes couldn't hide anything, <laughs> you know? So it would, yeah, uh, there was a degree of that, but I think more in general, it was about precaution than it was about, you know, we can't allow people to see other pregnant people. Um, I think that's kind of a rumor that started after that era has gone by, but that's what confinement is. Sir Walter thought much of Mrs. Wallace and said she was an, and said she was said to be an excessively pretty woman, beautiful. He longed to see her. He hoped she might make some amends for the very plain faces he was continually passing in the streets. The worst of the bath was the number of its plain women. He did not mean to say there were no pretty women, but the number of plain women was all out of proportion. He had frequently observed as he walked that one handsome face might be followed by thirty or five and thirty frights. At once he had stood by in a sheep shop in Bond Street, and he had counted eighty-seven women go by, one after the other, without there being a tolerable face amongst them. It had been a frosty morning, to be sure, a sharp frost, which hardly one in a thousand women could stand the test of, but still, there certainly was a dreadful multitude of ugly women in Bath, and as for the men, they were infinitely worse, such scarecrows as the streets were full of. It was evident how little the women were used to the sight of anything tolerable, by the effect of which a man of decent appearance could be produced. He had never walked anywhere 
arm in arm with Colonel Wallace, who was a fine military figure, though sandy-haired, without observing that every woman's eye was upon him. Every woman's eye, to be sure, was upon Colonel Wallace. Modest, Sir Walter. He was not allowed to escape, however. His daughter and Mrs. Clay hinted, united in hinting that Colonel Wallace's companion might have a good figure as Colonel Wallace, and certainly was not sandy-haired. How... "'How is Mary looking?' said Sir Walter, in the height of his good humour. "'The last I saw her, she had a red nose, but I hope she may not have it every day.' "'Oh, no, that must have been quite accidental. "'In general, she has been in very good health, and very good looks since Michaelmas.' "'If I thought it would not tempt her to go out into sharp winds and grow coarse, "'I should send her a new hat and pelisse.' Anne was considering whether she should venture to suggest that a gown or cap would not be liable to any such misuse, when the knock at the door suspended everything. A knock at the door! And so late! It was ten o'clock. Could it be Mr. Elliot? They knew he was to dine at Lansdowne Crescent. It was possible that he might stop on his way home to ask them how they did. They could think of no one else. Mrs. Clay decided, decidedly thought it was Mr. Elliot's knock. Mrs. Clay was right. With all the state which a butler and a footboy could give, Mr. Elliot was ushered into the room. It was the same, the very same man, with no difference but that of dress. Anne drew a little back while the others received his compliments and, his, and her sister his apologies for calling so late an hour, but he could not be so near without wishing to know that she nor her friend had taken a cold the day before, etc., etc., which was all politely done and politely taken as possible but her part must follow then sir walter talked of his youngest daughter mr elliot must give him leave to present his youngest daughter there be no occasion for remembering mary and anne smiling and blushing becomingly shrewd to mr elliot the pretty features which he had by no means forgotten and instantly saw with amusement at his little state start of surprise that he had not at all been aware of who she was. He looked completely astonished, but not the more astonished than pleased. His eyes brightened, and with the most perfect clarity he welcomed the ruler relationship, alluded to the past, and entreated to be received as an acquaintance already. He was quite as good-looking as he had appeared at Lyme. His countenance improved by speaking. His manners were exactly what they ought to be, so pol polished, so easy, so particularly agreeable, that she could compare them in excellence to only one person's manners. They were not the same, but they were, perhaps, equally good. He's, she's talking, of course, of Wentworth. Oh, I didn't ring the bell. Ding, ding, ding. She's talking of Wentworth. Ding, ding, ding. He sat down with them, improved their conversation very much. They couldn't, there could be no doubt of his being a sensible man. Ten minutes were enough to clarify, to certify that. His tones, expressions, his choice of subject, his knowing where to stop, all this was the operation of a sensible, discerning mind. As soon as he could, he began to talk to her of Lyme, wanting to compare opinions respecting the place but especially wanting to speak of the circumstance of their happening to be guests the same inn at the same time, to give his own route understand something of hers, and regret that he should have lost the opportunity of paying his respects to her. She gave him a short account of her party, business at Lyme. His regret increased as he listened. He had spent his whole solitary evening in the room adjoining theirs, 
had heard voices, mirth continually, thought they must be a delightful set of people, longed to be with them, but certainly without the smallest suspicion of his possessing the shadow of a right to introduce himself. If he had but asked who the party were, the name of Musgrove would have told him enough. Well, it would serve to... It would serve to cure him of an absurd practice of never asking a question at an inn, which he had adopted when quite a young man, on the principle of its being very ungenteel to be curious. The notions of a young man of one or two and twenty, said he, is what is necessity in manners to make him quite the thing, are more absurd, I believe, than those of any other set of beings in the world. The folly of the means they often employ is only to be equaled by the folly of what they have in view. But he must not be addressing his reflections to Anne alone. He knew it, and he soon diffused again amongst the others, and this was only at intervals that he could return to Lyme. His inquiries, however, produced at length an account of the scene she had engaged in there, soon after his leaving the place. Having alluded to an accident, he must hear the whole— when he questioned, Sir Walter and Elizabeth began to question also, but the difference in their manner of doing could not be unfelt. She could only compare Mr. Elliot to Lady Russell, in the wish of really comprehending what had passed, and the degree of concern for what she must have suffered in witnessing it. He stayed an hour with them. The elegant little clock on the mantelpiece had struck eleven with its silver sounds, and the watchman was beginning to be heard at a distance of telling the same tale— before Mr. Elliot or any of them seemed to feel that he had been there long. Anne could not have supposed it possible that her first evening in Camden Place could have passed so well. End chapter 3 Well, um, apparently I'm not quite in the habit of reading again. Five days off and I kind of lost it for a bit there, but I promise I'll get back in the habit soon enough. Um, what a nice chapter. I'm really glad that Anne's arrival in Camden Place was not nearly as miserable as she thought. And in fact, it was rather nice. She got to have a good chat with Mr. Elliot and he, unlike her family, actually showed interest in her and what she'd done and been and seen. And, uh, you know, any other family would feel ashamed of not asking after those things, which are only polite. I don't think her family feels that shame, which is a shame, <laughs> you know, shame. <laughs> anyway. Um, but I, I am very happy for Anne and I'm glad that Mr. Elliot was there to, on that first night, even though it was late to call. Um, what do you guys think of Bath? What do you think of Mr. Elliot? Now I've gotten to know, meet him a little. Um, uh, I think he's very charming which is always nice in a gentleman. I thought Sir Walter's comments about ugly people was hilarious. Um, <laughs> the fact that he stood in a shop and counted people, and it's just so funny to me. Now, granted, Anne said that her father's prone to exaggeration, so we probably can't take it all as true, but it's still just the idea of it. The idea that he would even think of making up a story like that is just hilarious. Um, yeah. So, good chapter. Next time looks about the same length. Um, so, we're still just moving along in a nice little chug here. Um, I, uh, I, will, I will learn how to reread read more carefully. So, I got chapter notes 
better for you next time. Um, and yeah, let me know how it's going. Uh, we're moving along to the end. Uh, it's getting very exciting. All right. I'll see you all tomorrow. Speak to you all tomorrow, rather. <laughs>